ladies to get in here from from prayer meeting recently. It's the men that have been dragging. Now I think it's the ladies. So anyhow, just to uh, go over a few of the the announcements. By the way, we had a great baptismal service on on Sunday. There were, I think, there were fifty people there, and uh, there were uh, uh, about eight that ended up being baptized. So it was a, a really good uh, a really good service. Also, um, be in prayer for Camparete. The dates for Camparete are July 16th to 22nd, and then the next week we have Vacation Bible School. So we still need to be praying for registrations, and we need to pray for some volunteers because we still need uh, need help for Vacation Bible School. Also, we want to uh, encourage people. I'm still working on some plans. There's a lot more in the works related to the both the D.C. trip and the Israel trip next year. Uh, I hope that by the end of this month we'll have uh, more details up there uh, on the website, but uh, that's important. And then this weekend we're going to have the memorial service for uh, Tony Franklin. And so we need to be in prayer for his parents, for Morgan and Sharon, and we also need to be in prayer for his brother Travis. The memorial service will be held at St. Thomas Episcopal Church and School, which is behind Meyerland Shopping Center. And the address there is 4900 Jackwood Street, and that will be at 1030 in the morning. There's going to be a meal that's provided for everyone afterward, and it's going to primarily be barbecue, chicken, a lot of other stuff like that. This is one of the teams over there at uh, St. Thomas that does this kind of thing, and we've been asked to help out with desserts. Now, we can't fulfill all the desserts that are going to be required, but we've had about four people who have responded to that, and uh, it would be nice to have a few more people respond to make some desserts for the uh, uh, for the for Saturday morning, and they need to be delivered to St. Thomas between, I think, 9 o'clock and noon Friday morning or before 9.30 on Saturday morning, which is when a lot of the preparations for the service itself will kick into high gear. So be in prayer for those things. Now, I think that is about it. Is there anything else coming up? A week from Saturday, on the twenty whatever that is, twenty sixth. That's when we're going to have the um, uh, men's prayer breakfast and also our our deacons meeting. So be prepared for that. Make sure you have that on your on your calendar. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge Him, and He will direct your paths. They that wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings as eagles. They shall run and not grow weary. They shall walk and not faint. Fear thou not, for I am with thee. Be not dismayed, for I am thy God. I will strengthen thee, yea, I will help thee. Yea, I will uphold thee with the right hand of my righteousness. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known unto God, and the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, shall defend your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Thou wilt keep him in perfect peace, whose mind is stayed on thee, because he trusteth in thee. 
for the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God shall stand forever. Before we get started, we'll have a few moments of silent prayer so you can make sure that you are in right relationship with the Holy Spirit, walking by the Spirit. When we sin, we're walking according to the sin nature. When we confess sin, God forgives us those sins, cleanses us from all unrighteousness, and our walk by the Holy Spirit is restored. So after a few moments of silent prayer, then I will open in prayer. Let's pray. Father, we're so thankful that you are our strength, you are our strong tower, you are our fortress. Father, you are our rock. There is no help in man, there's no help in the circumstances of life, there's ultimately no help in anything that is part of your creation. For you and you alone are our help and our strength, and we trust in you. And Father, as we uh, come together tonight, we're reminded of a number of families that are Uh, going through uh, grief over the loss of uh, loved ones. We specifically think about the Meisinger family and the death of Jim. We think about uh, Giselle and the death of Jean, her father, and we also are in prayer for the Franklin family over the death of, of Tony and Father. We know that all of these are believers and they've been promoted and there will be, we will be reunited in heaven. But, Father, there's still the experience of loss today and that experience of grief. And so, Father, we pray that you would comfort them with the comfort with which we have been comforted, and that comes from your word. Father, thank you for the time that we have to focus our attention. Each time there's a death, to reevaluate our own priorities and put that priority right where it needs to be, which is on our relationship with you, our walk with you, and our study of your word. Father, we pray that tonight as we study, you'd help us to reflect and understand what the lessons are that we should learn and apply and how this should impact how we think and how we live. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. All right, something is not right here. Let me hook up. There we go. Open your Bibles with me to 1 Samuel. We will be in 1 Samuel chapter 30. Uh, tonight, as we look at uh, this particular illustration that we have related to David, he is functioning as a Messiah. He's a type of Messiah. Now, that word type sometimes confuses people. The word type means an example. It's foreshadowing. In the Old Testament, there are certain people, certain events, certain things, some animals, that are used by God to teach certain things about his plan and his purpose. And these things, for example, the Passover lamb, as we studied on Sunday morning, is a type of Christ. It, is a, it teaches certain things about Christ. It's foreshadowing about Christ. David is a Messiah. He is the prototype, as it were, of the messianic king he foreshadows now he's human and he will fall short Saul too was a messianic type but he failed he is disobedient to God and so he really in his rebelliousness towards God becomes more a type of God's adversary Satan than a type of 
the future Messiah. So there's this contrast that we're going to see, and we have seen in 1 Samuel, for example, in 1 Samuel uh, 26 and 27, and we've seen that uh, contrast with Saul. David is focused on divine priorities and protecting uh, his people from the enemy. The enemy, especially in, as we see in both chapter uh, 27 and in 29 and 30, the enemies, the Amalekites, which are a type of of uh, Satan, they're a type of the enemies of the Christian. They are the ultimate enemies we're going to see to Israel, and they become um, they become in in the history of the Jews a a um, a symbol for all of their enemies, so that they refer to those who are anti-Semitic, those who have an agenda to destroy the Jews, to destroy Israel, as Amalek, and they would refer to the Nazis as Amalek. They refer to uh, Iran as Amalek. They refer to anyone who opposes Israel as Israel or anti-Semitic as a descendant of Amalek, and we're going to see why. So David is functioning in this messianic type where he is going to destroy the Amalekites in chapter 30. Now, I don't think we're going to get all the way through chapter 30 tonight, but I want to set this up a little bit. And so I want to review what we've seen so far But think about what's going to happen in chapter 31. What happens in chapter 31 is that Saul is killed by the Philistines on Mount Gilboa at that famous battle. Saul dies, Jonathan dies. As a result of his death, David will be crowned king. So what happens before David becomes king? He destroys the enemies of Israel. Do you see a type there? Do you see a pattern? David as a messianic king ultimately represents who? Jesus as the son of God, the son of man, the future king of Israel. What will Jesus do before he becomes the earthly king of of Israel in Jerusalem when he returns to the second coming? He will destroy the forces of the Antichrist at the Battle of Armageddon. So we see this pattern, this foreshadowing occurring that before uh, David becomes king, he is going to destroy the enemies of Israel in the form of the Amalekites. This whole period of David's life from the time that he is anointed in 1 Samuel 17 until the time he is enthroned in 2 Samuel chapter 1 is a picture of the church today. It's a type of the church. Because even though Jesus was recognized as king, anointed as it were, via the baptism by John the Baptist at the beginning of his ministry, he doesn't take the throne. He doesn't take the throne until he comes at the second coming. Now you have a lot of people who teach differently And they're just flat wrong because they do not literally interpret the scriptures, whether they are amillennialists or whether they are progressive dispensationalists. I always remember what uh, one of the well-known, famous or infamous uh, professors at Dallas Seminary said one time, back in the 60s, early 70s, there was a well-known Old Testament professor by the name of Bruce Waltke. And Waltke was absolutely brilliant. 
He uh, not only had his doctorate from Dallas, but he left Dallas and he went to Harvard for a second doctorate, got his PhD, and the story is that he was offered a full professorship, full professorship at Harvard upon completion of his PhD. That kind of thing only happens to people who have rarefied intelligence and scholarly ability. But but the problem that Walkie had, even though he was brilliant in the language, was that he was extremely fluid in his theology, and he's gone through various theological permutations since he left Dallas. And he ended up becoming a covenant theologian, teaching at Westminster, I think he taught at a couple of different um, high Calvinist-type seminaries. And so he's very familiar with what amillennialism is and what dispensationalism is because he came from dispensational ranks. And when he first read uh, Daryl Block and Craig Blazing's book on, on progressive dispensationalism, his comment was, they're amillennial and they don't want to admit it. See, that's what progressive dispensation, they, they spiritualize this throne of David so that when Jesus ascended, he is not just on the throne of God, on the right hand of God, but he is on a spiritualized throne of David. That's, that's the problem. But, but typologically, that doesn't fit because what we have is at the, at the beginning when David is anointed, even though he's anointed king, he isn't king. He isn't treated as king. He doesn't have the privileges or the responsibilities of king. And he's not treated as king until he's actually enthroned. And there's this period in between when he is persecuted by Saul, who is in control. Now, Saul represents and is a type of Satan, who is the prince of the power of the air, the ruler of this age, and who has dominion over the earth now. And while Satan has dominion over the earth now, the church is comparable to the mighty men of David who are being persecuted by Saul and his agents and his government and his administration. So it's not until Saul is taken out and removed that David ascends to the throne. In the same way, it is not until Satan is defeated and the powers of the Antichrist and the false prophet are destroyed and they're sent to the lake of fire, do not pass go, do not collect $200. And that ends the tribulation and it's not until they're off the planet that Jesus then ascends to the throne and it fits perfectly. But of course you have a lot of scholars and that kind of simplicity just isn't respectful. It's not scholarly. You won't hear that in the halls of Oxford or Cambridge or Tübingen or Aberdeen or Edinburgh or Harvard or Yale because that's that old dispensational stuff and they're just a bunch of backwoods uh, fundamentalists. And that's, that is a popular view today. And what we see in, this, in the Old Testament is a lot of these kinds of of patterns. So David is pictured here as fulfilling that messianic type where he will destroy the enemies of God before he ascends uh, ascends to the throne. So let's just kind of review. We've already talked about 1 Samuel 17, walk our way through what we've seen from 1 Samuel 17 up to 31, that in 1 Samuel 17, God sent Samuel to anoint David to be the 
king of Israel. He hasn't kicked Saul out. Saul is still the king. So David is uh, the king in waiting, and he has to learn some things. God's going to take him through some uh, various tests to learn to trust God so that that spiritual maturity that is developed during this wilderness period will strengthen him when he is king. So following that event in 1 Samuel 17, the next event in 1 Samuel 18 is what? David fulfills a messianic role, and that is he's going to defeat the enemies of Israel in the form of the Philistines and Goliath. And he understands that role by the way he responds to Goliath's challenge because he says, who's going to let these uncircumcised Philistines get away with this? He understands the issue is theological. All history boils down to theology. All decisions ultimately go down to your view of God. And so what um, David recognizes is that This Philistine out there in the Valley of Elah has no right to claim to the land because God gave it to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob and their descendants. And so he's going to go do battle and he's going to trust the Lord, recognizing that the battle is the Lord. A battle cry that he needs to uh, keep as uh, as, as part of his life and his thinking throughout Um, the coming years. So we have the challenge of Goliath that's met, but what that happens is that David gains fame, Saul becomes jealous, and in the following chapters we see uh, emphasis on Saul's jealousy and hatred for David. As that increases, he begins to attempt to kill David, and there are 16 different episodes where Saul attempts to murder David. And at this same time, because Saul is deteriorating spiritually, mentally, and morally, there is uh, oppression and tyranny that develops in the land. And we don't see a lot of the emphasis on that. We infer it from two different things. The first thing we infer it from is because as David is an outcast and he's running from Saul, uh, men and their families are joining him to live and camp out in the wilderness, and he gets at least 600 men with their families, so he eventually has over a 1,000. This probably lasted for a period of 8 to 10 years. Could be longer, could be a little shorter. We don't have an exact time scale, but that, that's probably a, a pretty good guess as to how long uh, he's out there in the, in the wilderness. Now, why are these people leaving? It's because they can't. Saul has made it too difficult for them to survive and live. You've got economic collapse, which, of course, we know goes along often uh, with tyranny. But if you read through the Psalms, and I want you to turn over with me. We're going to, in part of this introduction, we're going to look at two Psalms. Aren't you having fun looking at all these Psalms as we go through this? I'm really enjoying that. Okay, look at Psalm 12. Psalm 12. I've been reading and rereading my way through the Psalms over the last couple of months, and I was reading this just yesterday. And I'm reading Psalm 12, and it is all we get for a superscription is that this is to the chief musician on an eight stringed harp, a Psalm of David. We don't know the historical context at all. It could be early, it could be late, it could be at the time of Saul. It conceivably could be 
during the time of Absalom, but I don't think it fits there. What I want to do is direct direct your attention to verse 5. David is either writing this when he is in the wilderness before he becomes king, or he is writing this when he is king. Even during the Absalom rebellion, he's still the king. Now, his description of what's going on in Israel during this time is that there is oppression toward the poor. There's economic oppression towards the poor. Well, that's the, you know, he's the government. So it it's, wouldn't be talking about him and his administration because David was grace-oriented and the wisest king next to Solomon that, that Israel had. So this is not talking about government-sponsored oppression on the poor. This is talking about personal. One of the things that always happens is last hundred years you get these Marxists who come along, and every time they read anything in the Old Testament about the poor, they immediately interpret them within their Marxist framework, like Reverend Jeremiah Wright and Obama and every liberal since the late 19th century because in the religion of liberalism, the gospel that's going to save civilization is the social gospel and social justice, which goes along with that. And that has nothing to do with biblical teaching in the Old Testament. It's not the government that's oppressing because David's not going to complain about the oppression of the poor if he's the king. Okay, so who's doing the oppressing? It's people, and if it's when he's king, then he's got people in his in in the nation who are oppressing the poor. Now that doesn't really fit what we see of David's kingdom. So the only other alternative we have is that this is going on during Saul's reign. And David sees the oppression of the poor that is the result of that tyranny. So we have to exclude it from being something characteristic of David's reign because that's never seen anywhere in the scripture, but it would be a situation of Saul's reign. I just thought I would point that out. He's concerned, he says, for the oppression of the poor, for the sighing of the needy, now I will arise, says the Lord. I will set him in the safety for which he yearns. See, safety and security is the big crisis. Why do you have welfare? You want to provide security. You want to have a safety net for people. It's not in the government. The solution that you see again and again in Scripture is turning to the Lord. The Lord is the one that if the people would walk with the Lord... This goes back to the first half of Leviticus 26, verses 1 through 13. All the things that God's going to do to bless and prosper the nation if they'll walk with him. The nation that's disobedient to divine establishment, the nation that is disobedient to the divine institutions is the nation that is on the path of complete self-destruction and self-fragmentation, which is exactly where we are as, as a nation. doesn't matter... In one sense, what we do as believers, in another sense it does because we're the source of light and the source of help. But the solution to the problem is to turn to the Lord. It's the Lord who is going to provide safety and security. The solution isn't government. As Ronald Reagan said, government is the problem. 
The solution is freedom. The solution is giving people personal responsibility where if you start providing uh, help for everybody, they'll take it because man's sin nature trends towards irresponsibility. It trends towards letting somebody else do the work for me. If the government promises, then why should I work? I'll just trust in, in welfare. So we see this is the backdrop here is that under Saul it's a time of oppression and tyranny so many men uh, left they joined David along with their families and looked to him as the one who would uh, provide them with that safety and security not because of a government program but because he was following the Lord and they knew that that was the solution and then we saw that on two occasions one at the cave of Engedi and another at the hill of Hachila in 1 Samuel chapter 26, that David is tested as to whether or not he's going to take matters into his own hands. God obviously had, ordained, had uh, anointed him to be the king, so he's put David in his hands, and that's the temptation that comes from his close advisors. Look, Saul's in your, in your care, either in the cave of of uh, in Gedi or uh, at the hill of Aquila when he comes up on Saul and he's sound asleep um, he could be uh, easily killed and then David would be king but David refuses to give up uh, to give in to that temptation to take matters into his own hands he's got that choice am I going to take matters in my own hands or am I going to trust God now I want you to turn over a couple of pages to Psalm 18 Now, we'll come back and look at the 50 verses in Psalm 18 in three or four weeks. But I want to give you a preview of coming attractions. If you look at the beginning of Psalm 18, where you have the superscription at the top, it gives you the information, the historical context of what's going on. And we read to the chief musician... A psalm of David, the servant of the Lord, who spoke to the Lord the words of this song. So this was a prayer. On the day that the Lord delivered him from the hand of all his enemies and from the hand of Saul. Wow. So when does he write this? He writes this after he gets the word course if you look at second samuel 1 he's grieving for saul but what the psalm tells us is there's something else going on because after these years of persecution the years of torment and testing where saul is chasing him all over the country david is now king and this is a hymn of of gratitude and a hymn of rejoicing for how God has delivered him and how David has trusted God in the midst of this. And I just want to point out a couple of verses because what this tells us is it gives us a window into David's thinking during the time he's in this period of persecution. Because he didn't just, you know, he wasn't perfect. He had to grow through this period. He, He didn't do everything right. He didn't make every decision correctly. But it shows his mental attitude and the process by which he grows and thinks. 
So he starts off with a declaration of his love for God. He says, I will love you, O Lord, my strength. And the word there for strength is one we're going to see a little later on in our passage in 1 Samuel 30. He says, I will love you, O Lord, my strength. The Lord is my rock and fortress and deliverer. My God, my strength, and the word there isn't strength. It's not O's or Ozen. It's it's the word for rock. My rock in whom I will trust, my shield and the horn of my salvation, my stronghold. So in verse 2 alone, there are seven descriptions of God as our protector. He's rock, fortress, deliverer, rock, Uh, shield, horn of salvation, stronghold, and then you have another word in verse 1, strength. This is, uh, all these words talk about how God is the source of all of his strength, all of his capabilities. He is focused exclusively on the Lord. Now, in the following verses, he talks about uh, what his situation was. The horrible situation and how dreadful it was and also God's involvement very picturesque metaphorical language but I want to shift our attention down to verse 17 verse 17 he talks about he's in the middle of his uh, description of how God rescued him and he says he delivered me from my strong enemy that would be Saul from those who hated me, those who were allied with Saul. For they were too strong for me. David couldn't rescue himself. He had to be rescued by God. He also brought me out into a broad place. And the idea of a broad place is a place that is that is uh, rich. It's a place where there is uh, plenty of room. It, it's a picture of... In agriculture, you would rather be on a flat, large, open plain than up in the craggy mountains. So it's a place, it's a metaphor for a place of blessing. He delivered me because he delighted in me. He recognizes that it is God who chose him for a specific mission, not salvation. This isn't about election to salvation. Most of the election passages, in fact, I don't know any in the Old Testament they are talking about election to personal salvation. They're talking about God choosing Abraham for a new nation or choosing Moses to lead the nation or choosing David as the uh, type of Christ, the one through whom uh, the Messiah would come. In verse 18, let me see here. I may have missed one. I got 17. I skipped 18. So verse 18 says, they, um, they confronted me in the day of my calamity, but the Lord was my support. So it's the Lord who supports him. Now in verse 19 we read, He also brought me out in a broad place. He delivered me because he delighted in me. The Lord rewarded me according to my righteousness. According to the cleanness of my hands, he has recompensed me. For I have kept the ways of the Lord and have not wickedly departed from my God. What's he talking about here? I didn't try to take Saul out and solve the problem on my own. 
I trusted in the Lord. I didn't take matters into my own hands, and I didn't violate the Torah by killing Saul. The Lord rewarded me according to my righteousness. This is experiential righteousness, David's obedience to the Lord, his cleanness of his hands. He's not guilty of of killing Saul. And he says, I've kept the ways of the Lord and have not wickedly departed from him. For In verse 22, for all his judgments were before me, and I did not put away his statutes from me. I was also blameless before him, and I kept myself from my iniquity. So there's the emphasis on his personal responsibility. He chose not to sin. He had the option. He chose not to especially in the cave of En Gedi. I have a friend that just returned from Israel. And for those of you who've been, we haven't been to En Gedi in a few years, um, but it's we've only gone up to the waterfall. But there's a sign up by the waterfall that you can take another hike and go a little further up, and you come to the uh, uh, the cave, David's cave up there, and next year I'm going there. And this is what it looks like up there. There is another pool... And off to the left here is the entry to the cave. And so here is a picture. Here's the cave, this dark area down here in the lower right. This is the entry into the cave, which is where David and his men were hiding, and this is where Saul was. So it's a uh, a beautiful area. Uh, it's oasis. It's a spring-fed uh, stream that comes out there, and so the water's flowing all through the year. And even though it's hot there in June, it's a great place to go and and uh, and cool off. So, what we see is that David in Psalm 18. You can turn back to First Samuel 30 now. Uh, what we see is uh, David is reflecting upon this time period that he is trusting in in the Lord. Then, after those two events in uh, the episode at En Gedi and the episode in First Samuel uh, 26, then in First Samuel 27, David sought refuge among the Philistines. He makes a decision. I think it, I don't think it's a bad decision. It's never indicated as such in Scripture. And he seeks refuge among the Philistines, but he doesn't stay with them. He wants to be separate, so he's given the city of Ziklag. And that's where he uh, can protect his people and get involved in raids, as we saw, down into the south in the Negev of various groups. And he's attacking the enemies of Israel who should be destroyed under the principle of holy war, even though we studied that that's not the correct term. The Bible never calls it holy war. It's the ban or harem, where the Arabic gets the same word. It's a cognate word, harem. It is a set-apart area. So somebody has multiple wives, their harem, it's a set-apart protected area. And so the enemies of God are set apart. They are his enemies. And so the people are to destroy those enemies because God has given them enough time to uh, respond to him. And we've studied that in the past. And that's back around uh, lesson 51 in the series. But what we see here is an extension of that. It's similar, but it's not quite the same as David is going to go after after the Amalekites. 
So in these last chapters, in chapter 27, 28, 29, 30, and 31, what we see is a a literary device by the author who is uh, giving us a synchronic look. He's synchronizing what Saul is doing with what David is doing. So he has David going to Ziklag for a year and a half, or a year and four months, actually, with, with Achish. And it's during that time that as the Philistines get, at the end of that time, the Philistines are going to come against the armies of Saul and the army of Israel. And Saul needs to get some guidance because Samuel has died. So rather than seek the Lord, because the Lord's not answering him, he goes to a demon-oppressed, uh, demon-influenced woman who is a necromancer, and instead of seeking guidance from the Lord, he's seeking guidance from demons. And that's contrasted with David, especially in chapter 30. When David has a crisis, he goes to Abiathar and seeks guidance from the Lord through the Urim and Thummim. We see that it is during this time that uh, Saul has his complete uh, spiritual and emotional and moral breakdown. And David, though, faced with a real crisis, is the one who turns to God. We see how God is justifying and protecting David throughout this period from being accused of taking part in Saul's death because, as we saw in chapter 29, God providentially uh, intervenes so that the the other lords of the Philistines besides Achish come along and say, you can't let these Hebrews be in your battle. Send them back. We can't have them go to war. They'll turn against us. And so Achish releases David and sends him back home uh, to Ziklag. And so when Saul is killed, David is far in the south fighting the Amalekites and protecting uh, Israel from the enemy that Saul had failed to protect them from. Saul had failed to annihilate them as God had instructed. So the problem that David now faces is a problem that was manufactured by Saul's disobedience. And there's a principle there for all of us because we all face problems in our lives that are the results of people who make bad decisions or sinful decisions or foolish decisions, and then they end up coming back and splattering all over us. So David gets splattered over because of Saul's failure much earlier back in chapter 15. He failed to annihilate all of the Amalekites. So we see in this chapter, in chapter 30, David acting like a godly king. He's seeking God's instruction to how to handle the problem, whereas Saul is seeking the advice of a demon-possessed necromancer. Saul is in free fall. David is not. Saul had been commanded to fulfill an ancient promise by God to Uh, punish the Amalekites for what they had done at the time of the Exodus, and they were to be annihilated. Saul failed to do that. Uh, David, though, is not overtly commanded by God to annihilate the Amalekites. He has been attacked. Ziklag is attacked. While he's been away up in, in the north at Aphek, 
The uh, Amalekites have taken advantage of the weakness that the Philistine armies have gone north. Uh, David has gone with them, leaving the, uh, the southern flank exposed and unprotected. And so the Amalekites are invading from the south, and they have uh, captured, taken as prisoner to enslave them, all of the women and the male non-combatants. So they are being t- taken prisoner where they'll be taken somewhere and sold off into slavery to make more money. And then they burned Ziklag to the ground, so they destroyed it. And and uh, David, um, when he comes back and he sees this, he organizes his men to go after him. He doesn't even know who it is at that point. He doesn't know that it's the Amalekites, but he goes to the Lord. It's interesting. He goes to the Lord. He asks guidance. But the Lord doesn't tell him who it is. The Lord doesn't tell him how it's going to happen. The Lord just says, I'm going to protect you. You can can take him. And so David trusts him. He doesn't have to have uh, all of the details to go forward. He just trusts in the Lord and pursues the uh, Amalekites. Saul was commanded previously to exterminate the enemy completely, the Amalekites, he was told not to take any booty uh, and that it was all harem to the Lord, but he disobeyed and he preserved or spared the Amalekite chief. What was his name? King Agag. need to remember that. He failed to take Agag's life. Samuel came along and pulled out Saul's sword and hewed Agag to pieces. I love that verse. You know, prophets were not pansies. You know, too many Christian pastors over the years are just pansies. And that's the image. You get that in Hollywood. But that's not the picture you get of God's prophets or apostles in uh, in the New Testament. So David is not given any command by uh, Yahweh to destroy all of the booty, all the plunder, So he and his men are able to take the plunder, take back, and then he wisely divides it with his men. He divides it with the cities in the southern part of Judah that have been uh, victims of the uh, depredations and the attacks of the Amalekites and these other tribes. And so this politically is good because it's going to uh, gain their favor and they are the ones that when Saul dies, it's that southern area and the tribe of Judah that is going to crown him king in the first seven years he rules in Hebron, which is the city of the patriarchs. Hebron is where the patriarchs are buried. Hebron is where you have the cave of Machpelah, which is where Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob are buried. Abraham and Sarah, Isaac and Rebekah, and and Jacob and Leah are buried there. If you haven't been following the news, last Friday uh, you had a delusional, as Netanyahu puts it, a delusional decision by UNESCO, which is an arm of the UN, that has designated this as a as a threatened site, and and, uh, and has declared that it is a Palestinian. Uh, Palestinian protected site now. So it's put the label of Palestinians as if they're a state on Hebron. 
and that is just absolutely absurd. Uh, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob had nothing whatsoever to do with the Arabs, and so this is just the ongoing uh, battle as a result of uh, uh, a- Abraham going to uh, going into Hagar as a way to solve or to provide for God's to God's promise. So all of that's backdrop. What we see now is we come into before we get into the chapter. Uh, I'll just read the first verse. Now it happened when David and his men came to Ziklag. On the third day that the Amalekites had invaded the south and Ziklag, south is capitalized, it's Negev, which is often a technical term just for the southern part of of Israel. In Texas, we have an area down south along the Rio Grande. Rio Grande is the border between Texas and Mexico, and it's a very fertile agricultural area. And so it's the Rio Grande Valley, or it's just referred to as the valley. And when it's referred to as the valley, the V in valley is capitalized. That's the same idea that you have here, the Negev. It's the south, and it's, it's uh, capitalized as a proper noun. And Ziklag is down in that general area of, uh, of the Negev. So the the Amalekites had attacked Ziklag and burned it with fire. They raised it to the ground, and they had taken captive the women and those who were there from small to great. They did not kill anyone, but carried them away and went their way. Now when David and his men came back and they found Ziklag burned to the ground, how did they know that everyone was still alive? They didn't find any body parts. They didn't find any graves. They didn't find any corpses. They didn't find any burned remains. So they knew that everyone was still alive and they had been taken captive. This was very common in the ancient world that you would take captives because they could be sold as slaves and that would just increase your plunder. And there are many, many examples of Egyptians doing this, Hittites doing this, many other groups doing this in the ancient world. Now here's our map for orientation. Here we have uh, Aphek in the far north. This is the Yarkon River. Modern Tel Aviv is located here. This was where ancient Joppa was located. Over here we have Jerusalem. And along the Shephela here, which is the coastal plains, this is the city of Gath. South of that is Ziklag. This area here to the uh, west of Ziklag is what we would refer to as the Gaza Strip today. Here's Gaza. So this area right in here is where you have the northern border, the modern Gaza Strip would run along something like this. So that's just to the west of where Ziklag was located. And the Amalekites, as you see from these blue arrows, have headed south into the Sinai. And so that's the direction that David's going to go. Now, before we get any further, I want to review the significance of Amalek. Why is this so important? What's the significance of this? Well, in 1 Samuel 15, we have to go back to Saul's failure. So if you want to, you can turn with me to 1 Samuel chapter 15. But that's where we learn that Saul was given specific commands to annihilate every man, woman, child, 
and to destroy all of the herds of the Amalekites. 1 Samuel 15.1 Samuel also said to Saul, The Lord sent me to anoint you king over his people. That's a reminder. Over Israel. Now therefore, heed. He's saying, listen to the voice of the words of the Lord. Pay attention to what God is is instructing you. This is God's command. Thus says the Lord of hosts. Notice the title there. It's the Lord of the armies. The Yahweh is your commander in chief. You are a king, but you are under the authority of God. You're under the authority of Yahweh. And this is what Yahweh has said. I will punish Amalek for what he did to Israel, how he ambushed him on the way when he came up from Egypt. Now go and attack Amalek and utterly destroy all that they have and do not spare them, but kill both man and woman, infant and nursing child, ox and sheep, camel and donkey. Nothing survives. Why? Because Israel's future is not going to be built on the loss of these pagans. God's going to totally eradicate them from history. Now, in this map, which is from the Satellite Bible Atlas, we have a view of Israel. Here's the Dead Sea here as we see it today. Uh, here's Jerusalem here. This coastal plain, the Shephelah over here. Here's Gaza for orientation. Ziklag would be here. And this whole area down here to the south of Beersheba is the, uh, is the Negev. And so this is where Amalek is coming. They're coming from the south and they're invading into all of these areas here and uh, taking captives, including the attack on Ziklag, which is a, a, a vindictive attack against David. They, they know that David's been attacking them, according to First uh, Samuel 27. And so now they're going to attack David while he and his men are gone. They're going to attack Ziklag. So this is just another uh, map of the same area. So in 1 Samuel 15, 3, they were to utterly destroy Amalek. That's the word harem, which is the word to ban or to utterly destroy or to vote, to devote it to God. These were God, this was not for the plunder and the enrichment of Israel. This was, they were on a mission by God to destroy uh, the uh, Amalekites. Now, who were the Amalekites? The Amalekites are really distant cousins to the Israelites. And we first learn about them. Their progenitor is Amalek. And in Genesis 36.2, or 36.12 rather, we read, Now Timnah was the concubine of Eliphaz, who is Esau's son. So Esau, remember, Esau is Jacob's twin. Esau is the... Uh, older brother. He was also known as Edom because he is ruddy. And he has a son, Eliphaz, who has a concubine. A concubine isn't a wife. It's not really a mistress. This isn't some lady he's having an affair with. A concubine in the ancient world, it's kind of hard for us to to uh, understand, had a certain legal status. You, especially Even under the Mosaic law, there were certain responsibilities a man had if a woman was his concubine. She's not a wife, 
but she's not just some mistress either. She's kind of in, in between. And she has she gives birth to Amalek. And so these uh, then it goes on to list the sons of Esau's wife, Ada. Then in verse 16, we're told that there were these three tribal groups, Korah, Gatam, and Amalek, that were the chiefs of Eliphaz. So these would be other descendants in the land of Edom. And so that's their origin. They are distant cousins to the Israelites, the descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and but they're descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Esau. So they're not sons of the covenant. Now in this map, we see this, how the various other tribes are spread out surrounding Israel. Amalek is to the south. Amalek is to the south. And when we uh, read other passages about them. Uh, we read uh, uh, their primary passage is in Exodus chapter 17. So let's look at Exodus chapter 17. Turn in your Bibles back to Exodus chapter 17. Isn't it interesting how many times the later, later scriptures, whether it's Old Testament or New Testament, consistently go back to events at the Exodus event as a prototype or pattern for something that happens later on. That's why it's so important to learn these stories and learn them in context. That's what we try to do with the curriculum in the prep school is to uh, chain together these major stories. They're not just independent stories, but to show how they are interconnected, and the Bible fits together as a unified whole. So in Exodus chapter 17, the uh, Israelites have been delivered from the, past, from the uh, slavery in Egypt through the Passover, and the death of the firstborn in every family, death of the firstborn in all the herds and flocks in, in Egypt, and they have left. And as they are making the way, their way across the Sinai Peninsula, they are going to be attacked by this roving band of land pirates, the Amalekites, or the ancient version of ISIS in a way. They are attacking and destroying everybody. They'll take whoever they can alive and sell them as slaves, but they're going to plunder everyone they can. And we read in verse 8, now Amalek came and fought with Israel in Rephidim. And Moses said to Joshua, Choose us some men and go out, fight with Amalek. Tomorrow I will stand on the top of the hill with the rod of God in my hand. This is his staff. This is the same staff that he had thrown down before Pharaoh and it turned into uh, vipers or cobras. It's the same staff he raised that uh, God used to separate, uh, divide the Red Sea. And so he calls it the rod of God because this is the rod that God is using. So Joshua did as Moses said to him and fought with Amalek. So picture this broad, flat area in the Sinai, that just flat desert, but up on this ridge is Moses. Everybody can see Moses. And Moses is going to stand up there and he's going to raise his rod up over his head 
And as long as that rod is up over his head, God is going to strengthen Israel and they're going to prevail. So this becomes a picture of trust in God. And so uh, Moses and Aaron, or I mean, excuse me, Aaron and Hur are with him, another leader. This is where General Lew Wallace got the name Ben-Hur, son of Hur. for his uh, novel uh, on that, based on that uh, name, and then the movies were based on that, on that novel. So Mo, uh, Aaron and Hur are standing there, and we're told in verse 11, so it was when Moses held up his hand that Israel prevailed. And when he let down his hand, Amalek prevailed. So holding up his arms is a sign of his trust in God, but but after a while, your arms get heavy. Anybody who's ever been in football and you've been working out or you've done some sort of PT like CrossFit or something like that, or you've been in the military, you know that it's not long before your arms are going to start getting weary. When I was uh, in ROTC, we had a guy who was like a drill master and would run us in PT. And his favorite thing was to have us do these these little things where you do these little circles forward and then little circles back and then bigger circles. And after about a minute, your shoulders are just on fire. And so Moses is experiencing that. And he, after a while, he can't keep his arms up. And so um, they became heavy. And they put a stone under him so he could sit down on the stone and then Aaron and Hur supported his hands, one on one side and the other on the other, so that his hands were steady uh, until the going down of the sun. And so there was enough time for them to defeat Amalek. So Joshua defeated Amalek and his people with the edge of the sword. Then the Lord said to Moses, Write this for a memorial in the book. And recount it in the hearing of Joshua. I think that's evidence that Moses is writing down, keeping a record of these events that will eventually be uh, preserved as as the books of the Pentateuch. Uh, write it down as recounted in the hearing of Joshua that I will utterly blot out the remembrance of Amalek from under heaven. So that's a prophecy. God says, I'm going to wipe out Amalek from under under heaven. So Moses built an altar and called its name, The Lord is My Banner. For he said, Because the Lord has sworn, the Lord will have war with Amalek from generation to generation. So Amalek becomes the poster child of the enemies of Israel. And there are other verses later on in the Pentateuch that describe the Amalekites. For example, in Numbers 13, 29, 29, the Amalekites dwell in the land of the south, in the Negev. The Hittites, the Jebusites, and the Amorites dwell in the mountains. And the Canaanites dwell by the sea and along the banks of the Jordan. So in Numbers 13, we see that the Amalekites are lumped in with the inhabitants of the land that God has given to Israel. Numbers 13 is a passage where they have the failure at Kadesh Barnea, where they send in the 12 tribes. They come back. Ten of them said, oh, there's giants, there's big cities, walled cities, too many of them, we can't take it. And two of them said, sure we can, God's already given it to us. That's Joshua and Caleb. As a result, the people follow the the, uh, failures, 
instead of the heroes, Joshua and Caleb. And so God says, you're going to wander in the wilderness for 40 years before I allow you into the land. So here we have a list of the inhabitants of the land, Hittites, Jebusites, Amorites, Canaanites, and of course the Amalekites. The next time we see the mention, or one of the next significant passages, uh, is in Deuteronomy 25.17. I don't have a slide on that, but that is a reminder of what Amalek did to you on the way. And so this is a picture of uh, Sinai, and as they left somewhere in here, you have this attack. We don't know exactly what it was. I actually don't think Sinai was down here. They put Rephidim down towards the bottom, but I think it's further, a little further, uh, uh, a little further towards the north. So then, uh, what is traditionally, uh, traditionally viewed? Deuteronomy 25, we read, Remember what Amalek did to you on the way as you were coming out of Egypt, how he met you on the way and attacked your rear ranks, all the stragglers at your rear when you were tired and weary, and he did not fear God. That's Amalek's problem. He hasn't feared God. Therefore it shall be when the Lord your God has given you rest from your enemies all around in the land which the Lord your God is giving you to possess as an inheritance that you will blot out the remembrance of Amalek from under heaven. So that is a promise that they will be dest- that Amalek will be destroyed. We see Amalek lumped in with the enemies of Israel during the uh, period of the judges that the Ammonites allied themselves with the Amalekites in Judges uh, 3.13, attacking Jericho, that's the city of Palms. Judges 6.3, they were allied with the Midianites at the time of uh, Gideon. In Judges uh, 10.12, the Sidonians and Amalekites and Manites oppressed you. Uh, that's a little later on around the time or just before the time of, uh, of, of Jephthah. And so all of this relates to uh, the impact of the Amalekites. And then when you read in Esther, Esther takes place after the destruction of, of, uh, of uh, the southern kingdom in 586. When, Ezra, it, when uh, Esther is living in Susa, in the capital city there, and... Um, uh, they want to, uh, Artaxerxes is, is, is enticed by Haman, the in, who hates Israel, to, to uh, put up this anti-Semitic law that allows all of the people to kill the Jews at will on one particular day. Haman, the enemy of the Jews, is described as Haman the Agagite. He is a descendant of Agag. He is a descendant of Amalek, one of those who survived uh, because of Saul's failure. So those failures continue to come back and to haunt them. So this is why Amalek is such a problem for David. And we'll come back next time and look at chapter 30 and pull all of this together for us. Father, thanks for this time to study these things, to realize that you are our strength just as you were David's strength. Just as you provided victory for Moses and the Israelites at Rephidim against the Amalekites, so you will provide victory for us in our spiritual struggles. And ultimately, the enemy of your people will be destroyed at Armageddon, that is Satan, 
and the Antichrist and false prophet will be cast into the lake of fire. Satan will be bound in in, uh, the abyss for a thousand years. And Father, we pray that we today might recognize that we're like David and his mighty men during the time that they're in the wilderness, and we are to trust in you and wait for the future uh, return of Jesus in the air for us at the rapture and then the events outlined in Revelation for the tribulation. Uh, Father, help us to focus on you and walk each day, trusting you, claiming your promises. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.